By a show of hands, who's a Starbucks person? Okay. Who's a Tim Hortons person? All right. I mean, the world can be divided by Starbucks people and Tim Hortons people, right? Who here drives a domestic vehicle? Right? All the farmers put up their hands. Yeah. Who drives an import? Homeschoolers? Those well-adjusted socially? <laughs> That's a joke. It's just a joke. Uh, I was asking for some of these kinds of things from uh, some of the staff. Chris Battle, our campus pastor for out, uh, out in Lake Erock, said, Team Edward and Team Jacob, which is a reference to Twilight. I'm like, dude, you're like 10 years too late, but I'll say it. There's, the world used to be divided between Tim, uh, Team Edward and Team Jacob. There's those more conservative politically, those more liberal politically. There's iPhone people, and then there's those with no class, all right? Um, <laughs> there's those who shop local, and then there's Walmart customers. There's those who grow their own food, and then those who shop local. Those two actually really butt heads, right? The shop local people kind of trumpet that, and then the grow, it your, grow everything yourself people come along and kind of one-up them, and they don't get along. There's those who are Canucks fans, and then there are those who are fans of teams that win, right? <laughs> there is going to be so much long-suffering this year. Please join me in that. Look, I'm talking a little bit about some of our preferences and some of our tastes, but, but actually... What happens in our hearts is we kind of go on these kinds of things, we take them further and maybe into deeper, more complex issues is that we actually begin to wrap our identity around some of these things, right? Like my name's Matt, I am a homeschooler, right? Or, or I am my sexual identity. It's very much in my identity of how I see myself, how I present we do this, the identity attachment that goes along with allegiances. A lot of these kinds of things are fun, but, but they can get more intense down south of the border. You are a Republican or you are a Democrat. That's who I am. That's how I vote. And billions of dollars are spent every election cycle to try and persuade the 20% of Americans who aren't live and die one or the other. There are the Protestants, and then there are the Catholics. There are the rich, and then there are the poor. There is this ethnicity, and then there's that ethnicity. And when our identities get wrapped up in our preferences or perspectives or differences, it's not long before divisions form and people are known as categories Categories that don't play nice with each other, and the huge dividing walls go up between us. This was Corinth. I mentioned it last week. It was a sexually free, religiously diverse, individualistic city. Nothing like us. And in this city in Corinth, they had these particular influencers, individuals of great influence, and, and society different pockets of society would latch on to their great influencer. I'm with them. This was Corinth. This is Chilliwack. And this has always been a part of the fallen human condition. We're going to continue our 
series in the letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter to the Corinthian church. We're calling it 21st century church, but the two's a little scribbled because we're looking in at a first century church that was a mess, but we're also recognizing nothing's changed. And what Paul writes to the first century church is so helpful to us. And so we want to look in. We're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians 1 and, and, and go verses 10 through 17 this morning. What Paul is doing in this text is he's calling the church to unity. He's calling a community of people who would not be a community were it not for Jesus to be unified. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, brothers. It's neuter actually that this word can be translated brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, it's believed that that Chloe was a wealthy uh, business owner, either in Corinth or Ephesus, probably in Ephesus, but had business in Corinth. Whoever Chloe was, I like her because she had people, right? Chloe's awesome. She has people. And her people are tattletales. And probably didn't know that snitches get stitches, but Paul's glad that Chloe's people told him this because it's not good. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one might say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, We're going to kind of look at this text in three different ways, but to just make it a little more complicated, I'm going to kind of state each point negatively and then positively. So each point will have a negative and a positive, and we'll do that three times. Here's the first negative. When you exalt anyone other than Jesus, you minimize the gospel. This is what the church in Corinth was doing. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Christ. It's like that Sunday school answer of it's Jesus, except it's not meant to be a unifier. It's just another division. So these people over here are kind of a camp. They're a faction. They're this divided group that say, we're with Paul. We're identified with Paul. And another's like, we're with Apollos. We're with Cephas. And then there's those ones who are like, you guys in the institutional church, like, just have it all wrong. All I need is Jesus. The answer's Christ. But they're not, there's nothing unifying about that either. They're all divisions. And that's what's going on here. See, the context again, just to unwrap it a little bit more, was that Corinth was a city of great self promotion. In our Instagram culture, we know nothing of such a thing, self-promotion. But they would do that as self-promotion in one of two ways. The public figures in Corinth themselves were great orators, well known for their inflated egos and constant efforts to defame the competition. Think of a political smear campaign, right? 
That were, those were their tactics constantly. I'm great, I'm the greatest, and this is why that person's bad, and that person's awful, and that person. That was what they would do. So that was one day, way that you could gain notoriety. The other, though, for common folks in the city was that the people themselves would latch on to the public speaker that they thought would be most personally beneficial for them, that would prop them up. Well, I'm with so-and-so. And so their cachet kind of just trickles down to me as well, and I, I, I'll get some notoriety in the city with that group because that group has influence, and so I'm attached to them. And so what concerns Paul with all of this going on is that the culture has bled into the church rather than the church bleeding into the culture. Instead of allowing Jesus to change Corinth, the church was allowing Corinth to change Jesus, at least their display of him. The Corinthian church were dividing themselves into factions according to the influencer they latched onto, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. And so likely the, the rationale for Paul being like, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you, isn't that he wasn't faithful to the command to baptize. It's just that in this context where people often latched on, well, I was baptized by Paul, so I follow Paul. He's just glad that he didn't have much to do with baptizing more of them so that the factions would be elevated even more. He just wanted no part of that. I'm glad I didn't baptize you in your context. Baptism should happen, but I'm glad I didn't participate in it more because it only would have caused more divisions. Charles Simeon was a dandy. Anybody know what a dandy is? It's really the old English hipster is what it is. I mean, we're going to put a couple pictures up of dandies. I just love that Charles Simeon was a dandy. Now, a dandy is somebody who probably cares way too much about how they dress, sort of the opposite of Pastor Jason, right? So, no, just kidding. Just kidding. I only make fun of people in the room. You weren't in the room in the first service, so I couldn't. I put it on Tyson last time. Uh, a dandy was somebody who cared a lot about their dress, right? The hipster beard is really popular right now. It has this look of, I don't care, but they spend hours manicuring that behind the scenes. We all know that they do that. Uh, so this is a dandy, just kind of ostentatious dress. Um, there's a little comic strip there, the first one, which is... Um, uh, the, this dandy has dropped his handkerchief, but his pants are so tight he can't pick it up. That's his predicament, and everyone else is laughing at the dandy. Charles Simeon was a dandy, and as a student at Cambridge in the 18th century, he became a Christian. That was just bonus material, by the way, all bonus. As a student at Cambridge in the 18th century, he became a Christian despite his surroundings. Cambridge was initially a, a Christian institution, and yet had so fallen out of that, that to become a Christian at Cambridge was, at this time, uh, quite uh, infrequent. In the 1770s, uh, it was not a popular time to be an evangel evangelical Christian. The Anglican Church was in the midst of dealing with the New Methodist Movement, and the universities were strongholds of the established church in England. A few years before Simeon's arrival at Cambridge, a group of students at Oxford had met on Sunday, Sunday evenings for prayer and mutual encouragement. When a professor complained of certain enthusiasts in that society who talked of regeneration, inspiration, and drawing nigh unto God, the students were expelled. It's only in England where it's a negative thing to be an enthusiast, right? 
just hilarious to me. A, an actual professor at Oxford went and complained about these Christians who are so serious about their faith, and the students were expelled for it. That was the climate at that time. Simeon recalls in his memoirs that after his conversion as a freshman, for three years I knew not any religious person. He went through all of college alone without any other Christian students for support. Could be because he was dressed like a dandy, I don't know. Despite these obstacles, Simeon kept his faith and was ordained shortly after graduation by the Bishop of Peterborough. In 1782, the bishop appointed Simeon as the curate in charge at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge near the university. This was not a welcome event to the congregation. Like most church congregations at the time, they wanted a preacher who would entertain instead of one who issued serious exhortations to repent and believe as Simeon did. They wanted Mr. Hammond, their assistant curate, to become their minister, and so they opposed Simeon strongly. Church at that time was a little different than today. Pew seats were assigned and had doors on the ends which could be locked to prevent anyone else from sitting in them because what, what shows hospitality as a church like locking people out of your pew? Well, the Holy Trinity Church Wardens could not prevent Simeon from officiating at the Sunday morning service. For years, the congregation not only refused to listen to Simeon's sermons, but locked their pews so that any visitors would not have a place to sit. When Simeon rented chairs at his own expense and placed them in the aisles, the church wardens threw them out. Students hurled bricks through the windows in on his worship services and lectures. Simeon, Simeon remarked one day in his journal that he had been amazed that a student was not ashamed to walk with him around the Clare College quad for a mere 15 minutes. He was amazed that a student would even walk with him and be seen with him for 15 minutes. That's how despised he was on the campus of Cambridge. But he persevered and won over many who held him in contempt through his integrity and steadfast clutch on the gospel. Although he would face opposition until the very end of his life and ministry, although constantly wondering if he should leave, Simeon remained at Holy Trinity for more than 50 years. Simeon's concern did not stop with his own congregation. On Sunday evenings, he held class, classes in constructing good sermons, helping Cambridge students who would later become pastors. He inspired dozens of young people from his church to take the gospel to the far corners of the earth. By the time he died, it's estimated that one-third of all the Anglican ministers in England had sat under his teaching at one time or another. He remained single his whole life, and his entire ministry was at Holy Trinity, Cambridge. When he started, people reviled him. His church reviled him because he preached the cross and called people to repentance. And by the end of his ministry, a third of Anglican ministers in the country had sat under his teaching and were also evangelical, would proclaim the gospel with frequency and call people to respond. What a transformation in 50 years. But at the outset, the church was interested in being entertained. They had a preference for a certain personality, Mr. Hammond, 
and the ministry of the gospel that happened in that church and city for the first number of years happened not because of the church, but despite it. See, when you exalt anyone other than Jesus, you minimize the gospel. That church minimized the gospel. And as Simeon was put into that role, he began to exalt Jesus. And the gospel went out with power despite the church. See, when you exalt anyone other than Jesus, you minimize the gospel. But when you exalt Jesus, you magnify the gospel. When the great reformer Martin Luther heard his followers were being called Lutherans, he was infuriated, saying, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine. How do I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. Lutherans? No, Christians. When you exalt Jesus, you magnify the gospel. In response to the vain self-exaltation of some pastors in his day, Luther went on to say, may God protect us against the preachers who please all the people and enjoy a good testimony from everybody. Hearers should say, I do not believe in my pastor, but he tells me of another Lord whose name is Christ. Don't, in, don't exalt in a preacher. Exalt in a Savior. Paul goes on in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, says Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. What's being said? Personalities, people, preachers, People with ministries, influencers, Christian influencers. Who are they? Servants, that's all. Or they're self-exalters where the gospel gets squashed. See, a gospel sermon directs you to look to Jesus, not the preacher. A gospel sermon directs you to follow the preacher. Sorry, follow Jesus, not the preacher. critical distinction. I think there's a danger in this kind of technological age we're in, this moment. There's so much good that comes from technology in our time, but there, there are warnings that, that need to be had. And one of them is that we have the ability to listen to world-class preachers at, the, at our fingertips constantly, anytime we like. We can listen to world-class preachers, and, and what, the, the dangerous part of that is we can filter all theology through what they say where they land on issues of faith and practice, rather than on Jesus. So just to clarify what I mean, John MacArthur is fallible. He's capable of making mistakes, of errors. Jesus does not err. Andy Stanley is not your standard. Jesus is. Francis Chan loves the church a lot. Jesus loves it more. 
John Piper's sermon notes are not inerrant. The Word of God is without error. Bruxy Cavey might be the Anabaptist rock star right now, but every tradition has its strengths and its weaknesses. Tim Keller, well, Tim Keller's probably spot on, but uh, (laughs) in conversations, I often refer to myself as a Reformed Anabaptist charismatic. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One is, it's usually when I'm chatting with somebody and I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure that they fit one of those boxes and I like to watch them squirm as I, as I coin myself with terms that make them wildly uncomfortable. It's really fun. But the better reason, the bigger reason why I often refer to myself as a Reformed Anabaptist charismatic is that because I'm, I'm discovering that all of these traditions have their blind spots and their gifts. We follow Jesus, not Luther, not Calvin, not Menno. We ought to be Berean-like. The Bible should always inform our theology. Our theology should not inform the Bible. We shouldn't force our theology to make the Bible fit. Well, I need to, I need to twist these verses to make my theology fit. No. Let your theology be informed by the clarity of the Scriptures. The Bereans were this group in Acts chapter 17 we read about, where we're told that the Bereans received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What things? The things being preached to them. They received the preaching of the Word with eagerness. They heard the Gospel, and they were excited about it. They were eager about it. But it led them to listen to the preacher and then to test the preacher by what the Scriptures said, and that was their practice every day. You you get to test me every week by the Scriptures. You're not going to like what I have to say a lot, and you can take that up with me, but I invite you to first take it up with the Scriptures and prove me wrong. And where I'm wrong, you you will hear me humbly repent and try and correct But where it just goes against your opinion and not the Word of God, we have no conversation to have. I will not always please you. The Bible will not always please you. But may we be Berean-like and being tenacious about saying, I'm hearing what he's saying, I don't like it, let me test it. I'm hearing what they're saying, I really like it, let me test it and ensure that it's the truth. How do we know? We follow Jesus. Jesus is revealed in his scriptures. To see if the preacher was faithful is is what the Bereans do. The danger is when we believe the preacher over the Bible. Well, that's my guy. Well, I follow her ministry, and she lands here. I land there. Don't go there. Look, we, we, we ought to praise God for faithful Bible teachers. They are great helps to us, and the Scriptures even tell us to honor them. But our highest allegiance is to the Lord. It's to Jesus, and Jesus should be exalted by the preacher, and Jesus should be exalted by the hearers. So just really, really practical point of application here. If you, if, if I, if you can fill in the blank like, oh, who's your Bible teacher, and you can tell me the answer, oh, it's so-and-so. I, I want to give you just a practical bit of encouragement. Broaden your horizons. Could it be that God, in all His power, in all His mercy, in all his grace, has ordained more than one individual to speak faithfully in this world 
Don't just have your guy. And test them by the Scriptures. Let's move on or I might really start to preach. Uh, Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Interesting. What's he saying? I think he's saying this, eloquent wisdom says, follow me. But we need to define that further, because is communicating eloquently wrong? Should we be uneloquent? Should we not be eloquent in our communication? Is that what Paul's saying? Should we not be wise? Should we not be insightful? Should we not be deep? What's he saying? I think Paul's point is not so much to create a dichotomy between preaching style and the preacher's giftedness, but to downplay the role of the preacher. Preachers who exalt themselves, even in the name of faith, don't proclaim the gospel, they proclaim themselves. Paul's aim in preaching is not to gain a following for himself, but to lead them to the only one worth following, who is Jesus. And so he's like, I'm glad I wasn't super eloquent. I'm glad I didn't appear super wise to you, because it wasn't about those kind of superfluous things that drew you to the message. It was the message. But the rest of the chapter, also, all the way into chapter 2 as well, also informs what he's talking about. See, the rest of the chapter talks about the fact that the best human wisdom can't bring us to God. God had to come to us. In verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The substance is Christ. The gospel is God's way upon us that makes a way for us to God We cannot, with our best wisdom, with our greatest eloquence, build a ladder to heaven. It just won't get us there. So what is the substance of the preacher's message? Is it human wisdom or is it the wisdom of God? Is it the gospel? Where does the spotlight shine in the ministries of the church, in the sermons, in the youth ministry, in all of these places? Where does the spotlight shine? It ought to shine on Jesus. Is the gospel taking a back seat in the local church as it was in Corinth? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Man, the gospel ought to be in the driver's seat. And it wasn't. So while eloquent wisdom says, follow me, the cross says, follow Jesus. Charles Spurgeon is known to us as the prince of preachers or the people's preacher. Um, He was a preacher in London, England in the 19th century, and he was a lot like Paul in that, well, he had a brilliant mind, brilliant mind, photographic memory. He would read like a half dozen books a week, and years later, he'd remember what he read where. I'm so jealous. (laughs) He was a lot like Paul in that way, brilliant, brilliant mind, preeminent theologian but he spoke in common language to common people, and the high church hated him. Preachers from the high church at the time called his preaching vulgar because he spoke in plain language. They didn't do that. 
The established churches spoke with such sophistication that they were completely irreverent to this, irrelevant to the social setting. So they would get up into their pulpits and they would speak to the people and use different languages and nobody understood what those languages used theological terms but never defined them and nobody knew what was being said. And they were like, I nailed it. Nobody understood a thing and there weren't transformed hearts. Spurgeon got into his pulpit and spoke in plain language and always pointed to, them to the cross and people were saved. People were sanctified. What I love about Spurgeon is that he said regularly, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. No matter which text of Scripture he was preaching, he could always preach Jesus. Why? Because it's one redemptive story. It's one big book. It's all a redemptive story that's ultimately about Jesus. No matter where you open it, you can point people to Jesus, our redemption. Now, I bring up Spurgeon because, I mean, he was particularly anointed, was he not? like particularly gifted and kind of anointed by Jesus, that Jesus just did some crazy stuff through Spurgeon. He was really eloquent. He was really witty. He was really captivating. People would rather see Spurgeon than theater in London. The newspaper was sold at a newspaper stand, and beside the newspapers were Spurgeon sermons printed every week. You could buy them and read them. It was the best literature in the city. He was eloquent. He was wise. Paul's point is, always gospel-centered, always a beeline to the cross. Here's, here's how Spurgeon was so anointed. At one point, he, uh, he, he preached in this big venue, an agricultural hall, and he just wanted to test the acoustics before the event. So he got up on the stage for the event and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there was a janitor in the back of the room, got saved, anointed. But Spurgeon could have gone up and said, hey, oh, this just testing this, it only seats 2,000. I've spoken to 20,000 at once before. He could have done that as his mic check. He didn't. His one-liner testing the room was all about Jesus, that he takes away the sins of the world. Will you believe in him? And someone did. So anointed was Spurgeon that a woman bought a block of butter, and that block of butter was wrapped in one page of a transcript of a Spurgeon sermon. So she unwrapped the block of butter, read the single page from the Spurgeon sermon, got saved. There was a man in prison in South America who received a gift in prison. It was wrapped in a Spurgeon sermon. He read the wrapping, got saved. It wasn't because Charles Spurgeon in London, England is such a sight to behold. It's because everything he said on every page of all of his notes, it was centered on the cross. See, the cross says, follow Jesus. And we think, oh, well, that's Spurgeon, right? Okay, I'm going to name drop here, a name that nobody cares about. But my friend Pat Zabel writes some great songs. We sing his song, Revive Us Again. He's written some songs for Sovereign Grace Ministries that are on their albums in the States. It's a network of churches in the States, and they make albums, and some of his songs have been on there. And he wrote a song called Jesus, Thank You. It was recorded by Sovereign Grace. And an American soldier who was stationed in Afghanistan a few years ago just listened to that song constantly. I know this because Pat got an email about this. This, this soldier just listened to the thank, Jesus thank you all the time. In the barracks, he just, he just listened to Jesus thank you all the time. And his bunkmate had to listen to, the guy on the other bunk had to listen to this guy always playing Jesus thank you. But eventually, after hearing it so many times, this other soldier started listening to the lyrics. 
And the lyrics spoke the gospel, sung the gospel. And so this soldier, this bunkmate who had to hear his fellow bunkmate play this song over and over and over again, listened to the song and got saved as an American soldier stationed in Afghanistan. And that soldier who got saved because of Jesus, thank you, wrote Pat an email and said, just want you to know that that song so clearly proclaimed the gospel that I believed and was saved, and I want to say thank you. Do you see what the substance of the ministry ought to be? The substance of our ministry is not our oratory skills, our great wisdom. I just want to show off my intellect here a little bit. No, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's always Jesus. Look, the call of the preacher is to get out of the way and let the spotlight shine on Jesus. The call of the worship leader is to get out of the way and let the spotlight shine on Jesus. The call of the youth leader is to get out of the way and let the spotlight shine on Jesus. The call in our life group is not to impress the group with our brilliance. It's to let the spotlight shine in that living room on Jesus. So let's make a beeline to the cross every time we get to be known by something. Let's make a beeline to the cross as we speak to one another in the church. Let's make a beeline to the cross as we minister to one another. Let's make a beeline to the cross as we do social justice work in our community. Lastly, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? A divided church makes the gospel look untrue. When Paul says, be no divisions, he says, no cliques, no cracks, no factions, no dissensions. He asks the question, is Christ divided? And it should be this great rhetorical question where we all proclaim, no! But the way the Corinthian church were acting made the answer look like, yes. Paul appeals to them that all of you agree. It literally means that all of you speak the same. So what does that mean? Are we supposed to just be aligned on every social issue? Oh, this is the response. This is the only faithful response. We all have to speak the same. We all have to believe the same. Every thread of theology, are we to all land in the exact same place? Is that what's being said here? No. This doesn't mean that they must complete, have complete doctrinal alignment, but that their common testimony be about Jesus. They'd lost focus. They'd allowed the norms of the culture at large to influence the thinking of the church. And that just doesn't jive because Jesus unifies, but their display didn't show it. Paul in Ephesians 2.14 said, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What Paul is saying here, both one, he's talking about Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews had been made one in Christ is what he was saying. Rich and poor made one in Christ. The old and the young made one in Christ. Male and female made one in Christ. I'm talking about the the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility, the ministry that Jesus has done. Paul may be referring to uh, the temple in Jerusalem, where on the dividing wall between the outer courts of the Gentiles, they couldn't get that close. There were inner courts, and then there was the 
holy of holies, and so that the court of the Gentiles was quite far back. Paul may be referring to the temple in Jerusalem where on the dividing wall between the outer court of the Gentiles and the inner courts, an inscription read that Gentiles would only have themselves to blame for their death if they went past it. Jesus breaks down those dividing walls. Jesus took the death so we could get the unity. Jesus breaks down the dividing walls we put up and makes those who would never otherwise be one, one, because of having Jesus in common. Don't hold it against me, but Tyson and I used to be roommates, and uh, we uh, shared a house, and a third guy as well shared a house in Abbotsford years ago, and it was this neat little little bungalow. It was, like, it was pushing like 100 years old. It had some neat character to it, a main level and a basement. But they had, the, the owners had done some uh, renovations to it, so it was, it was kind of cool. It seemed, it seemed neat. We walked through it, and we're like, yeah, this is great. And, uh, and then we moved in, and uh, a lot of the ren- some of the renovations weren't completed, and so it was kind of just like work-in-progress home, which wasn't great. And we quickly found out that there were rats. There was a rat problem. And by rats, I mean like rats the size of small cats, uh, right? Like, and then the rain came. And the rain came and uh, flooded the basement up to our knees. Tyson and I were the, the, upstairs, the upstairs roommates, so we were fine. Uh, but, but our third brother, uh, God rest his soul, no, he was, he's fine. He was flooded out. And we were just like, this is a mess. We walked through it, looked great, looked fine, it looked like a decent house. Moved in, yeesh, we got to get out of here. That's what the church looks like when it's divided. People go, Jesus, wow, Jesus, I, I, can, I can jive with Jesus. And then they start to look in at the church and go, wow, they're a mess. Well, this isn't at all what I thought it was supposed to be. Doesn't Jesus reconcile? Why are you unreconciled? And they move in and they go, I'm out. I've got to get out of here. This is what a divided church looks like to the watching world. A church that is not unified makes the gospel look untrue. By our testimony with our mouths and confession, we say, Jesus Christ can reconcile and redeem all things. And then we live unreconciled lives toward one another, making the gospel look untrue with the testimony of our lives. See, if you cannot live at peace with others in the church, if you are creating and maintaining factions in the church, listen to me. The testimony you confess with your mouth may be that Jesus can reconcile and redeem all things, but the testimony of your life makes that look untrue. Unity in the church isn't just so it's nice. Ah, it, it's, it's not awkward to go to a church that's unified, and that's nice. That's not what Paul's after here. A divided church makes the gospel look untrue, but here's what Paul's after. A unified church is a living display of the power of the gospel. That's why Paul cares. He wants them to be unified because a multicultural multi-socioeconomic, multi-generational church with Christ in common is a testimony of the gospel. In such a divided world, a church that's unified, diverse as can be, is a testimony of the gospel 
to the watching world. See, Jesus entered fractured human history full of dividing walls to restore what's broken and make people whole, to make people a community who otherwise never would be. On the cross, Jesus was divided in order that we may no longer be. His divided, crucified body establishes the spiritual unity of this body, the church. Jesus was emptied on the cross so that we would no longer be empty, trying to chase identity in all kinds of lesser things. He was emptied so that he might become the source of our fullness. On the cross, Jesus experienced the fracture of relationship with God and humanity so that we could have a new identity in Jesus with a restored relationship with God and humanity. Here's the thing. With our identity in Jesus, we're freed to embrace God and embrace one another. So Central, I I want to plead with my brothers and sisters. I want to appeal to my brothers and sisters. Strive for unity. We live in a cultural moment when if we don't agree, we can't be friends. In the church, that ought not be. In the church, there's a lot of things we won't agree on, but we agree on Jesus and therefore we're family. Don't you love family dynamics? There's a lot of descriptors, a lot of illustrations, word pictures in the New Testament about what the church is. I particularly like the illustration that the church is like a family, that we're brothers and sisters, because we all have that quirky uncle, right, who hugs us too long. Let go, Uncle Dave, let go, right? We all have the senile grandma who says things that are racist or whatever it might be. Grandma, don't, don't, don't say that anymore. It's not appropriate. We all have that like young man in the family who's like 20 and just charged up and you're like, settle down, you're gonna burn the place down, right? We all, like there's the family dynamics, the Thanksgiving. So when we get together on Sunday mornings, it's like Thanksgiving meal, right? And it's like, yeah, it it, it, it has its challenges. Strive for unity. When we gather around the table, as we will do in a little bit, Jesus is at the head of the table. I think we can all sit down the table from him. Let's be a people who can all sit down the table from Jesus. Let's not let our differences eclipse Jesus. Let's not let our pride Our agenda eclipses Jesus. Let's make a beeline to the cross and be like, you know what? Him and I, her and I, we've got Jesus in common. It's enough. For some of us, that means we need to do some reconciling. We need to reconcile with some people. I'll give you three reasons why it's important. One, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to be reconciled with God, to be reconciled with one another. We have the great privilege of being ministers of reconciliation. Second, your contribution to factions and divisions in the church makes the gospel look untrue. That has to be put to an end. So where there are factions, where are there divisions, 
we need to bring restoration, reconciliation. So thirdly, your contribution to the unity of the church around the person and work of Jesus can put the gospel on display as a testimony to the world. A divided church makes the gospel look untrue, but a church unified in Jesus is a living display, a testimony of the redeeming, reconciling, and restoring power of the cross. Let's strive for unity. We're going to transition now to a time of, of taking the Lord's Supper together, and the way we'll do it is this. As you are given a little bit of time as the band begins to lead us in songs of worship, you just have a moment to reflection, the time you need to reflect. Uh, I, I love that corporate confession we did earlier. It, it helps to lay the groundwork, that, that framework for Sundays that we take communion together to just hearts of repentance. But listen, you get to do that work on your heart. You, sin will come up. Reconciliation that needs to happen in your life with others will come up. Bring that to Jesus. But here's the thing. After you come to him in repentance and faith, after you come to him like that, you get to step out from your seat and come forward and receive. Not because you're good, but because he's great. Not because we save ourselves, but because he saves us. So we come and receive, not with shame, not with guilt. We come and receive as free people, unified in the gospel a Jesus whose life was poured out so that we could be one. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray and then let's respond. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are the great unifier. And we repent, Lord, of our actions at times within the church family. Lord, we need your mercy. We need your grace to flood in and reconcile broken things, to tear down walls that we've built up that that do not belong in the household of faith. Jesus, make us a reconciled people all the more. This is a beautifully unified, healthy church that I praise you for. But Lord, make us more so. There are dividing walls. Tear them down. Jesus, may we be a living, vibrant testimony of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.